On January 20th, 2017, Donald J. Trump took the presidential oath of office in front of the U.S. Capitol and became the 45th president of the United States. He succeeded former President Barack Obama, who served two terms and was able to enact a sweeping health care reform law. While running for president, Trump made it clear that one of his first actions in office would be to repeal the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. This law has extended comprehensive insurance coverage to millions of Americans since it was enacted nearly a decade ago. Well, the Affordable Care Act is actually a, a coverage law. It, it fundamentally didn't change the employer-based coverage system in the country. But what President Obama wanted to do with the law was to deal with the 40 to 45 million people who were uninsured in the country. That's Doug Walter, head of the Government Relations Office for the APA Practice Organization. And I'm Jewel Edwards-Ashman. For this episode of Progress Notes, I sat down with Doug Walter to discuss the Trump administration and Congress's approach to repealing the Affordable Care Act and how one of President Obama's signature policies managed to survive Trump's first 100 days in office. During last year's presidential campaign, President Trump ignited supporters with promises that he would take action to repeal the Affordable Care Act as soon as he took office. Unlike in other policy areas where I think he has some very strong convictions, such as in taxation or business or trade, he seems to be deeply involved. And so what I have heard him say, such as with his speech to Congress in late February, is basically he's towing the Republican line. And it's, it's a fundamental difference in opinion on how health care should be provided in the country. And so uh, where we had President Obama, who wanted a more centralized system and uh, coverage for all, I, I think that what I see with President Trump is a desire to let market forces work. That is his beef, shall we say, with the Affordable Care Act, in that it puts too many requirements on the market. After spending less than one full day in office, Trump issued his first executive order, an order aimed at giving states and regulators more leeway on how they could enforce the Affordable Care Act. As far as executive orders go, Doug Walter says the order was too vague to have a significant impact on insurers or patients, but just the act of issuing the order sent a strong message to elected officials and the public. As a political signal about what he wanted to do with the law, I think it was a very powerful, particularly, again, hours after his inauguration, What he's basically saying is what his intent is when he becomes president. In other words, very early in his presidency, he intends to repeal and replace in some way Obamacare. But very clearly, early on, both the president and the Republican majority in Congress signaled that they were going to do it through a few avenues. And the the first was through a reconciliation process where they would take parts of the law that had impact on federal spending, and they would modify and repeal parts of the law related to that. Secondly, Secretary Tom Price, Secretary of Health and Human Services, has rulemaking authority as the secretary to, for instance, reinterpret some of what the law says. So that would be a second area where the law would be repealed and replaced although a more limited avenue. And thirdly, they would repeal and replace the law with regular 
order. In other words, through the usual bill enactment process in Congress. So it was basically looking at this in a sort of rolling order. Reconciliation, Secretary Price looking at regulation, and then the usual bill process for those parts of the law that reconciliation couldn't touch. So the American Health Care Act was only the first part of this three-part process. The American Health Care Act was basically a bill that came out of the reconciliation process. The American Health Care Act, or H.R. 1628, was released by House Republicans to the public on March 6, 2017. We wanted to signal to the president and to Congress that anything was on the table. We were willing to look at repeal and replace of the Affordable Care Act as long as those people in our country had equally reliable coverage for their mental health and substance use disorder treatments. We ultimately did oppose the bill because it became quite clear that the bill would be damaging. And the damaging aspects of the bill are around coverage. Remember, the Affordable Care Act was a bill basically to extend coverage to those who were uninsured. And what the Congressional Budget Office determined when they looked at the bill, and the Congressional Budget Office scores bills, so to speak, and analyzes bills for Congress, when the Congressional Budget Office looked at the bill and said that 24 million Americans would lose their coverage, with the repeal provisions in the bill, that's when we came out against the bill. We know that millions of Americans get their mental health and substance use treatment because of the Affordable Care Act, and we thought that was too high a price to pay in this process. The Affordable Care Act expanded coverage through two avenues. First of all, it created a marketplace for working families in the individual and small employer market. And when the president and Congress say that Obamacare is failing, they're actually talking about this aspect of the expansion of the law, that these marketplaces are not working as well as they could. The second way that the Affordable Care Act expanded coverage was it lowered the poverty threshold in Medicaid and expanded Medicaid to that poor adult population. And so these were very, very important aspects of the law when it was enacted for us. And so that's why ultimately we opposed it. So did most other consumer and provider groups. And ultimately, it's why it just did not make it through the House of Representatives. Not only were most consumer groups and healthcare groups not on board with the American Health Care Act, Doug Walter says there were a number of Republicans, members of Trump's own political party, who were still not convinced of the bill's merits. You have in the House of Representatives a fairly narrow Republican majority. And there are in the House a number of Republicans who are members of what's known as the Freedom Caucus. And these are what we call Tea Partiers, which is a grassroots populist movement in the country, which actually congealed in opposition to Obamacare back at the beginning of the decade. So these members of Congress are the members who are always calling for repeal and replacement 
of the Affordable Care Act. So what was happening then and why the law failed is that the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, was trying to get enough votes in the House to get the American Health Care enacted. And what he was doing is he was bargaining to get more of these Freedom Caucus members to vote for it. But as he was getting more Freedom Caucus members to vote for it, he was losing more of his moderate Republican base who simply were too uncomfortable with the huge loss of coverage associated with, with the bill. So ultimately, the bill didn't make it through the House. The Speaker actually took the unusual step of withdrawing the bill just a few hours before the House was to vote on it because he simply didn't have enough votes. Doug says this action taken by Speaker Ryan, suddenly withdrawing the bill right before it's about to go up for a vote, is not typical. Well, the Speaker of the House has tremendous uh, power through rulemaking to get legislation done. He has to because he has so many members of the House that he has to, to get on his bill to vote for it. So it's unusual in that right up to the withdrawal of the bill, both the Speaker and the, the, the White House were saying that they had the votes. So it's very unusual for a Speaker at the last minute to pull a bill from the floor. Usually long before that vote happens, the Speaker thinks that he has enough votes and he usually or she usually does. While Speaker Ryan was trying to gather votes, the government relations staff at the practice organization and APA were working with members of Congress. Well, this was actually an all-hands-on-deck sort of effort. And when I say all-hands-on-deck, I'm not just talking about the APAPO government relations office, but all the government relations offices in APA were involved, science, public interest, and education in some way, because the law is such a large law impacting so many of our constituencies. So basically, we were so concerned right off the bat with what looked to be like a rollback of years of our work on various healthcare reform provisions that were part of the Affordable Care Act, which again was a profound step forward in the coverage and treatment of those with mental illness and substance use addiction. So shortly after the election, we, and as we've discussed earlier, we realized that the president was going to make repealing and replacing the law his priority. We met with uh, some key Republicans to offer expertise. We also met with some Democratic offices. We clearly saw that the Democratic caucus in both the House and the Senate was basically not going to play, so to speak, unless the Republican majority was going to offer a real replace plan. And all signals early on was that the majority wasn't there yet. So in December, we wrote to Speaker Paul Ryan, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, again, offering to, to help to be part of the discussion. We also wrote to, well, I guess then President-elect Trump, offering a basically the same input. We lobbied early on in some key offices, but our goal was in our lobbying to always bring up our side of the story, our unique side, which is what the law did, again, for expansion of mental health and substance use coverage. 
So in our lobbying, we were on a hill, we're meeting with members, we start up a grassroots campaign. Again, this was an APAPO and APA shared grassroots campaign, a drumbeat basically on what the law did. Again, no repealing the law was our message without replacing it with a strong law for mental health and substance use services. And that campaign over time on the APAPO side, more than 15,000 communications from our practitioners went into their members of Congress, urging them not to repeal the law without fully replacing it. We gathered stories because nothing is more impactful to a legislator than to hear stories about the impact of the law. We received dozens of those which we shared with members of Congress. We had a Hill Day uh, as part of our practice leadership conference on March 7th, right when the reconciliation legislation was going through Congress. And during our Hill Day, nearly 400 psychologist leaders from across the country went and met with their senators and their representatives delivering our message. Psychology PAC the Political Action Committee also played an important role in this fight to protect mental health benefits. When psychologists give to the PAC, it shows that we're supporting financially the political aspirations of our allies and those who we think could be our allies. And so we were targeting our money towards those members of Congress that were really going to help us in this fight. And so that's what we did very early on. Doug says the repeal attempts aren't over, but he doesn't expect to see any serious ground made on repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act in the short term. Health and Human Services Secretary Price could take action to change how the law is enforced, but it's unclear what that action may be. Now that we see that reconciliation hasn't passed, so he has no direction from Congress, what he can do then is more limited than what he could have done if Congress had enacted the American Health Care Act. We do have to remember he is the Secretary of Health and Human Services, just as President Trump heads the executive branch. And the Affordable Care Act, as President Trump said, after the defeat of the American Health Care Act, remains the law of the land. So they actually have an obligation to make the law work as well as they possibly can. So I think agency action here is narrowed after defeat of the American Health Care Act. So what's the practice organization focused on right now? We will continue to work on the Affordable Care Act. Um, Our priority legislation, though, is what we call the Medicare Mental Health Access Act. This is a would be a change to the Medicare statute which would put psychologists under the Medicare physician definition. Now, that's not really a definition limited to physicians. There are another number of non-physicians included in it, such as chiropractors and podiatrists and dentists. Getting psychologists included in that definition, in that statutory provision, would greatly enhance their stature in the program and specifically would take them out from under Uh, psychiatrist and physician supervision in several Medicare treatment settings. We're going to look for any vehicle, any Medicare uh, legislation, 
possibly coming down the pike this year that we could get that bill attached to. Diane Padula, Director of Regulatory Affairs for the Practice Organization, says that any future Medicare legislation could impact a select group of psychologists, some who may be new to Medicare due to an aging clientele. We estimate about 28,000 psychologists are currently Medicare providers. We often find that psychologists who maybe have been dealing with some patients for a number of years, as those patients are getting older and leaving the workforce and are going to be on Medicare, that might be around the time that some psychologists that have not been Medicare providers previously start to inquire whether or not it's worth it for them to enroll as Medicare providers. In some locations, Medicare is actually one of the better third-party payers, one of the more reliable, consistent, and on-time third-party payers. In other places, psychologists may feel that the rates are much lower than what they're able to earn by dealing with private insurance patients. Over the past few years, Congress and Health and Human Services have made significant changes to Medicare, most notably the Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization Act went into effect. The law basically created a new system in which Medicare's payments to health care providers are tied to quality and performance. Psychologists in Medicare do not have to start reporting under this new system until 2019. The most important thing they need to understand right now is that they have a bit of a breathing period before they really have to worry about macro taking effect. MACRA for 2017 is instituting the merit-based incentive payment system and advanced alternative payment models. The first one is where most healthcare providers are going to be. Known as MIPS, it is going to reward quality and value. Most people are going to be average, and some people, unfortunately, are going to see cuts in payment because they're not keeping up with their peers. The key is... For 2017, this applies to physicians and certain physician extenders like nurse practitioners. It does not yet apply to psychologists, and psychologists would not enter MIPS until 2019 at the earliest. With a new presidential administration that has new ideas on how the healthcare system should work, some healthcare providers are wondering if the way MACRA is implemented could change. We don't know if there might be some changes coming to MACRA other than the one that CMS was already anticipating would take place as as the program grows. But even if there are new proposals that could change the way Medicare or any other health care policy is implemented, Diane says psychologists can play a big role in ensuring that the practice of psychology is protected. One of the most important things is that psychologists have such powerful stories to tell because they deal with people who need assistance in being able to live their lives. And so the work that psychologists do is so valuable, not just to these individual people, but also to their families, to their ability to participate in the workforce or get themselves through school. It's truly life-changing and supportive of the life that they're trying to live. But many people in places like Capitol Hill don't realize that. And they need someone to really explain to them what it is that psychologists do and the many different ways in which they help people live better lives. And that ends this episode of Progress Notes. On the next episode, we'll hear from psychologists about the challenges and rewards of rural practice. 
you're not just a specialist in terms of your ability to understand and competently practice as a generalist and treat whatever walks through the door, but also you become competent on the specific culture, the conditions, the context that differs from probably every rural community because every rural community has their own histories and contexts and biases and strengths. This episode of Progress Notes was produced by me, Jewel Edwards-Ashman, along with Hannah Hawkins and Luana Bosolo. You can listen to Progress Notes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and our website, apapracticecentral.org.